Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. This week's episodes have been on our to-do list basically since Holly and I joined this podcast in 2013. (laughs) Uh, It's been there for a while. It's uh, Executive Order 9066 and the removal of Japanese Americans to camps that followed it during World War II. Executive Order 9066 was signed on February 19th of 1942, so we are coming up immediately on the 75th anniversary. That will be this, these podcasts are coming out on Wednesday, Monday and Wednesday, and then this weekend is when that anniversary takes place. These events are most associated with Japanese nationals and Japanese American citizens, and Executive Order 9066 was framed specifically to target Japanese immigrants and their citizen children, although it did not specifically mention any nationality. At the same time, about 3,000 Italians and about 11,000 Germans were also incarcerated, but this was actually under the terms of the Alien and Sedition Acts, which were a whole different set of laws and much, much older, as in hundreds of years older. Uh, and these were in facilities that were overseen by the Department of Justice rather than the uh, the Japanese removal, which was overseen by the Department of War. Most of the Italians and Germans who were incarcerated were citizens of Italy or Germany and were classified as enemy aliens. But some were also U.S. citizens, including family members. Uh, and a lot of times... Evidence used to justify this incarceration was little to non-existent or even made up. Roughly 122,000 Japanese immigrants and American citizens of Japanese ancestry were removed from their homes uh, on the West Coast and incarcerated for much of the United States' involvement in World War II. This was, uh, roughly two-thirds of them were United States citizens, and this was effectively the whole Japanese population west of the Sierra Nevada Mountains, with the exception of Hawaii. We are going to tackle this story in two parts, uh, as I alluded to earlier. In today's episode, we're going to talk about the historical context, including an overview of the history of immigration to the United States from Japan, and how the United States government decided that interning people based on their nationality was in the country's best interests. Then next time we will get into the details of the incarcerations themselves, and then how they were challenged at the time, and what happened when they were over. Discussions of Executive Order 9066 and the resulting incarcerations often start with the bombing of the U.S. naval base at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, by the Japanese Empire, which launched the United States' entry into World War II. That attack came on December 7th of 1941, which was a Sunday morning, and many of the military personnel stationed there were at church, leaving the base short-staffed to muster a defense. Although it had seemed quite likely that some kind of attack was imminent, what actually did happen still caught the nation completely off guard. It was terrifying and stunning. More than 2,000 Americans were killed in the surprise attack and more than 1,000 more were injured. The nation's Pacific fleet was almost destroyed. The following day, a joint session of Congress approved a resolution declaring war on Japan. Japanese nationals in the United States and American citizens of Japanese descent, who had already been subject to prejudice and discrimination, soon fell under enormous suspicion. 
So a lot of times this is basically described as Japan bombed Pearl Harbor and then the United States uh, interned Japanese people. But the, the events that led to this order go way back farther than Pearl Harbor, and they're tied to the overall history of Japanese immigration to the United States. In the middle of the 17th century, the nation of Japan was ruled by the Tokugawa shogunate, and it adopted isolationist policies and had very little contact with Europe or European colonies for more than two centuries. That changed in 1853 when Commodore Matthew Perry and his fleet arrived in Tokyo Harbor and essentially forced Japan to begin trading with the United States. The next few years brought massive changes to Japan. Its agreement to trade with the United States had been reluctant and under duress, but that agreement opened the door to trade with other nations as well. A newly introduced stream of goods and cultural influences from the West brought rapid changes to Japan, ultimately contributing to a revolution that ended the feudal shogunate and returned imperial rule. This return to imperial governance, known as the Meiji Restoration, took place in 1868. After the Meiji Restoration, life in Japan continued to change incredibly rapidly, with urbanization and industrialization leading to job and income loss, especially among agricultural workers. A newfound stream of foreign imports also meant that Japan's laborers and craftspeople were facing increasing competition for work. At first, the Japanese government restricted emigration out of the country, especially after the illegal recruitment of 150 Japanese citizens to work as laborers on an American-owned sugar plantation in the then-independent nation of Hawaii. But in 1885, the Japanese government started actively working with other nations, including Hawaii, to send Japanese citizens to work as contract laborers. Initially, they would work abroad for a few years before returning home to Japan. Some went abroad again on another contract after returning home from their first one. At about this same time, United States immigration law changed in such a way that recruiting labor from Japan became a much higher priority. Until the late 19th century, the United States had very few laws governing immigration. For the most part, if you could get to the United States or its territory, you could stay. But that changed in 1882, just 14 years after the Meiji Restoration, with the Chinese Exclusion Act. Although other acts with a narrower focus came before it, the Chinese Exclusion Act was the nation's first major law significantly restricting immigration. It was signed into law by President Chester A. Arthur, and as its name suggests, it banned all immigration from China to the United States. It also prohibited Chinese people that were in the United States from becoming citizens. This act came about in part because of high rates of unemployment and low wages. Chinese labor had been a really important part of the gold rush of 1849 and the building of the Transcontinental Railroad. But once the rush was over and the railroad was complete, the Chinese community started taking the blame for a job shortage and low pay, particularly in the western and northwest states. Additionally, Chinese people were viewed as undesirable by the white community, and at least some proponents of the exclusion law were motivated by a perceived threat to their racial purity. To put it in context, it was also in this same general time period that many U.S. states were passing increasingly strict anti-miscegenation laws outlawing interracial marriage. 
Even though Chinese immigrants had become economic scapegoats, banning immigration from China cut off an actually needed source of labor. And one way to bridge that gap was with immigrants from Japan, who were not subject to the Chinese Exclusion Act. So just as the United States began to need additional workers, Japan also began to view working in the United States as an opportunity for wealth and status. And we're about to talk about what happened when Japanese immigration to the U.S. started in earnest. But before we get into that, we're going to take a little break and pause for a word from one of our fantastic sponsors. After about 1861, roughly 275,000 people immigrated from Japan to the United States. As we said before the break, at first, many of these arrival- arrivals were temporary laborers, but eventually some did begin to make the United States their home. Many worked in agriculture and in railroad construction, particularly in the Pacific Northwest, or started businesses catering to the Japanese community. By law, although Japanese people could come to the United States legally, they, along with all other Asians, could not become citizens. Most of these Japanese immigrants arrived between 1898 and 1924, during which time the U.S. passed a number of other immigration laws, along with a so-called gentleman's agreement with Japan. Japanese immigrants had started to face the same prejudice as Chinese immigrants had before them, and the gentleman's agreement was meant to reduce the number of Japanese people coming to the United States. It limited entry to people who had already been in the United States before and to the families of Japanese nationals currently living in the United States. The reason Japanese immigrants effectively stopped coming in 1924 was the Johnson-Reed Act, also known as the Immigration Act of 1924. This act capped the number of new immigrants from each nation at 2% of the people from that nation who were already living in the United States as of the 1890 census. It also specified that any group prohibited from becoming citizens also could not enter the United States. And that meant that Japanese immigrants, who had been exempt from prior immigration laws that targeted other Asians, could no longer immigrate to the United States because they were legally ineligible to become citizens. From the start of Japanese immigration to the United States to the Immigration Act of 1924, most Japanese immigrants settled in the West Coast or in Hawaii. Hawaii had been an independent nation at the start of Japanese immigration, but became a U.S. territory in 1898 after United States business interests aided by American military overthrew its monarchy in 1893. If that sentence made you go, I'm sorry, what? (laughs) Go to mistinhistory.com slash tags slash Hawaii. Following the same pattern as other immigrant groups, Japanese people generally settled together and formed communities. But it wasn't just a matter of shared connections culturally or wanting to live near other people who spoke the same language, though. In many cases, discriminatory housing and lending policies forced Japanese immigrants to find homes and to start businesses only in specific neighborhoods. In some cases, laws prevented anyone who was not eligible to become a citizen, which Japanese immigrants could not do, from buying property. And if you want to learn more about that, you can go to mistinhistory.com slash tag slash redlining. So by the beginning of World War II, 
The west coast of the United States was dotted with Japanese communities with their own schools and houses of worship and successful businesses owned and run by Japanese proprietors. Since the Johnson-Reed Act had cut off immigration from Japan in 1924, Japanese immigrants to the United States had generally been in the nation for more than 15 years. Hawaii also had a large Japanese population, larger in fact than the sum total of all of the Japanese population on the entire west coast. Many of these communities were socially and economically thriving. For example, about half of the Japanese residents of the West Coast were farmers. Japanese-owned farms made up about 4% of California's farmland, but they produced more than 10% of the total value of the state's farm industry and 40% of its produce production. Although Japanese immigrants had been legally prohibited from becoming citizens, birthright citizenship meant that their children born in the U.S. were citizens automatically. So by 1941, these neighborhoods tended to be a combination of Issei, or first-generation immigrants born in Japan, and Nisei, who had been born to Japanese immigrants but were American citizens by birth. Included among the Nisei were Kibei, who were born in the United States but had been educated in Japan. All of this finally brings us to the United States' response to the bombing of Pearl Harbor. The entire run-up to World War II and the U.S. involvement in it could be at least an episode all of its own, possibly more than one, so incredibly, incredibly briefly. On July 7th, 1937, Japan invaded China, and on September 1st, 1939, Germany, under the rule of Adolf Hitler, invaded Poland. Great Britain and France declared war on Germany on September the 3rd of that year, and then over the next year, more and more nations either invaded or declared war. Again, this is not a remotely comprehensive sum-up of the beginning of World War II. And although the United States had offered weapons and aid to Britain and other allies, it had also tried to not get directly involved with the conflict. As a general trend, the public both wanted Britain and its allies to win the war, but did not want American troops being deployed to foreign soil to fight on behalf of other nations. A number of organizations stridently advocated for staying out of the conflict, including the America First Committee, which was motivated both by isolationism and, at least by some of its members, anti-Semitism. Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor was an attempt to destroy United States military forces in the Pacific, with the hope that doing so would prevent the United States from intervening against Japan in Asia and the Pacific Islands. While the attack did do significant damage to the United States Pacific Fleet, uh, so it accomplished that part of the objective, it was also what finally prompted the United States to enter the war, which was not really a surprise but the destruction of the fleet had not been total enough to actually keep the United States from then intervening in Asia and the Pacific. While initial reports of the bombing in the U.S. were often horrified and angry, at first there were also a number of appeals for calm. First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt went to Los Angeles on December 11th to meet with Japanese-American women, and upon returning to Washington on December 16th, she wrote the following in her syndicated column, which was called My Day. Quote, perhaps it is the test which is going to show whether the United States can furnish a pattern for the rest of the world for our future. Our citizens come from all the nations of the world. Some of us have said from time to time that we were the only proof that different nationalities could live together in peace and understanding, each bringing his own contribution, different though it may be, to the final unity which is the United States. 
She went on to write that the United States needed to, quote, furnish the pattern for the rest of the world living together in peace. And to say that if the United States could not guarantee the freedoms of the Bill of Rights to all of its people, keeping in check anti-Semitic, anti-racial, and anti-religious feelings, then, quote, we shall have removed from the world the one real hope for the future on which all humanity must now rely. Meanwhile, the Japanese-American community was, on the whole, vocally supportive of the United States and spoke out stridently against the attack. In Rafu Shimpo, the largest Japanese-language newspaper in the United States, an editorial published in its first issue after Pearl Harbor spoke against the Japanese empire and its actions. Japan started this war, it read, and it is now up to the United States to end the war by crushing the Japanese empire and her ruthless, barbaric leaders. However, this appeal for calm and acceptance overall did not last for very long, and we will talk about the first actions against Japanese Americans after another quick sponsor break. In spite of the initial appeals not to blame Japanese Americans for the actions of the Japanese Empire, the United States government took immediate action against the number of people who were believed to be a threat. In the first few days after Pearl Harbor, about 3,000 foreign nationals were arrested under suspicion of being dangerous enemy aliens. And a lot of these arrests were based on lists that had already been compiled through census records and the FBI. About half of the people in this first wave of arrests were Japanese immigrants. They were sent to prisons, camps, and jails around the United States, and in general, their families had no idea where they had been taken. Enemy aliens' bank accounts were also frozen, and in many areas, travel restrictions and curfews were implemented. And as kind of a side note, an enemy alien is just a person living in a nation that's at war with their actual nation of citizenship. Overwhelmingly, the people caught up in this first sweep had done absolutely nothing wrong. They were religious or civic leaders in the Japanese community, including priests, teachers, and leaders of organizations like the Japanese American Citizens League. Some just owned a boat or a radio and or had donated to a Japanese community organization. In the weeks after Pearl Harbor, public opinion turned increasingly against Japanese Americans. Fear of a fifth column of Japanese Americans lying in wait to secretly work against American interests swept through the government and the population at large. And the government became increasingly focused on how to handle this perceived threat. This is really widespread. Theodore Geisel, better known as Dr. Seuss, drew anti-Japanese and anti-German cartoons during the war, including one that showed throngs of offensively caricatured Japanese people picking up blocks of TNT at a little hut marked Honorable Fifth Column under a caption, quote, waiting for the signal from home. And it wasn't just Japanese immigrants who were the target. It was their children born in the U.S. as well. An editorial in the L.A. Times summed up what was the increasingly prevailing view. Quote, a viper is nonetheless a viper wherever the egg is hatched. So a Japanese-American born of Japanese parents grows up to be a Japanese, not an American. Within the government, there was general agreement that at least some people of Japanese ancestry were dangerous and needed to be incarcerated, although there were voices both for and against doing this on a massive scale. Curtis B. Munson, who was one of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt's spies, 
wrote a report to the president that between 90 and 98 percent of Nisei were completely loyal to the United States, with the exception of those who had been educated in Japan. Lieutenant Commander Kenneth Ringel of the Office of Naval Intelligence had uncovered real Japanese espionage efforts, but his recommendation was also that not all Japanese Americans should be targeted. His estimate was that at least three-quarters of second-generation Japanese Americans were actively loyal to the United States, and that most of their parents were passively loyal. The only group he advocated investigating en masse were the Kibei, who had returned to Japan for their education. Especially at first, the Justice Department was generally opposed to the idea of a mass incarceration on the grounds that it was unconstitutional. There are many, many, many parts of the Constitution that this did directly violate, so this is not an unreasonable suspicion. This included Edward J. Ennis, a lawyer with the Justice Department, the FBI's J. Edgar Hoover, and Attorney General Francis Biddle. Biddle not only thought the incarceration of citizens without cause was unconstitutional, but he also thought a much bigger threat was German and Italian nationals on the East Coast, especially given threats to American shipping and passenger lanes in the Atlantic. One of the loudest voices in favor of a mass incarceration was Lieutenant General John L. DeWitt of the U.S. Army. He was, at the time, headquartered in San Francisco, and his office sent seemingly continual reports of aggressive Japanese activity in the days after December 7th. There were reports of bombings, sightings of entire Japanese fleets, air raids, Japanese-American farmers plowing signals into their fields, signal flares at sea, mystery radar echoes, strange radio transmissions, on and on. And none of these turned out to be legitimate. Another voice in favor of a mass incarceration was Earl Warren, who was at the time California's attorney general, and his support for a mass removal would ultimately help him win the governorship. As a side note, he would also later become the chief justice of an incredibly (laughs) civil rights-minded Supreme Court that ruled on things like Brown versus Board and Loving versus Virginia and he never spoke about this during his lifetime but a number of biographers and historians and me feel like the incredibly progressive stance that his supreme court took especially in terms of things like civil rights and civil liberties was atonement for this like he he wrote one sentence about it in his autobiography or his memoir or whatever you want to call it that was just basically expressing remorse. Uh, and during an oral history project, he broke down so hard when asked about it that, like, they had to stop the interview. And to me, it is a completely logical step from there that, like, all the work that the Warren, uh, that the Warren court did when he was the chief justice was, like, to make up for having supported this. Yeah, it certainly, I mean, it's not like a big leap of logic. It it makes a lot of sense given his behavior in those moments. Uh, and as time passed, public and political opinion turned increasingly in favor of a mass incarceration of Japanese Americans. Some of this was fueled by the media. More than once, for example, American planes and ships spotted from a distance were mistaken for a Japanese attack fleet, and newspapers reported on them before it became clear that there was absolutely no threat. Because of inaccurate news reports and a generally heightened sense of panic, 
By the time a Japanese submarine really did torpedo and sink the USS Montebello, which was a Union oil tanker on December 23rd of 1941, non-Japanese Americans, particularly on the West Coast, had already felt like they had been under attack by Japan for weeks. The Coast Guard censored the news of this and two other actually for real torpedoed American vessels, but officials knew that if word got out, there would be a huge outcry and possibly violence against the Japanese community. Gradually, the U.S. government and law enforcement stepped up its targeting of Japanese Americans. Arrests became more widespread, and law enforcement started reporting that they had confiscated huge numbers of weapons from Japanese residents, leaving out the fact that most of these had come from Japanese-owned sporting goods stores. On January 14, 1942, the Placerville Times published the first public call for Japanese Americans to be placed in concentration camps. Today, the, the term concentration camp has become nearly synonymous with the Holocaust, but camps like Auschwitz and Treblinka, which were built for the purpose of killing the people in prison there, are more properly called death camps or extermination camps. The word concentration camp, on the other hand, was coined in 1897, and it comes from the Cuban War of Independence. It simply means a camp where a large number of people, particularly political prisoners or racial or ethnic minorities, are to be imprisoned, often without adequate facilities and sometimes also being forced into labor, generally during wartime. So the camps that soon came into existence in the United States, which are euphemistically called relocation centers or internment camps, were, by definition, much more properly called concentration camps. Other newspapers soon followed with a call for concentration camps, comparing Japanese Americans to rats and other vermin and portraying them as thieves and spies waiting to rise up and overthrow the whole of the West Coast. Soon, public sentiment was overwhelmingly in favor of a mass removal of all Japanese Americans from the West Coast to be incarcerated for the duration of the war. Finally, the United States government did plan a massive removal of Japanese Americans from the West Coast and construction of camps where they would be incarcerated, which is where we will pick up next time. Okay, Tracy, so we're headed into very depressing territory next time, but do you in the meantime have listener mail? I do have listener mail. It is from Emily, and it is based on or in response to uh, our Edmonia Lewis episode, which you actually uh, researched. And I wanted to read it after having a conversation on Twitter with a listener named Margaret on a very similar, uh, like, train of thought. Uh, and uh, Emily says, my name is Emily, and I am an artist and art student in Toronto, Canada. I'm currently finishing my undergraduate thesis with a particular emphasis on queer art history. I just wanted to say I love the podcast and really enjoy hearing about all areas of history, but especially love the art historical episodes. I'm writing this email because I really appreciate that you mentioned the consideration, however vague, of Edmonia Lewis's sexuality. I know you said a lot of LGBTQ groups claim her as a queer historical figure without any real evidence or expression on her part. I understand that this is not the usual historical practice, but thought that from an LGBTQ and art perspective, I might be able to shed some light on the idea. In queer history, we're often working with very little information on whether or not to include a figure into queer history. I find this issue is sometimes more difficult in queer art history because many historians and academics actively avoid the subject or work to make excuses against queer themes in artwork or events in the artist's life. 
However, I've been working for the last three years on ideas of queering art history. However, most historical figures, there is no obvious label or exact historical record of their own identity. So we often describe what we can about them. In Edmonia Lewis's case, she was a woman and an artist who lived outside of the confines of the role of women in her day. She did not marry. She had her own successful career and made a name for herself in a time when women were not expected to be independent. She also lived and worked alongside other women who were artists creating a community for themselves. All these things I would consider, and so would queer theory, a queer act. Edmonia Lewis lived outside heteronormativity, so despite her ambiguous sexuality, she will always be a queer artist. As a queer artist myself, I always hope for undeniable proof of queer people in history. But those moments are rare and highly debated. So over time, I've come to accept that those who led queer lives are in many ways enough representation. Thank you for all your work, Emily. Please feel free to share this email on the podcast if you like. Uh, we are indeed sharing this email on the podcast. Thank you so much, Emily. Um, and thank you also, Margaret, who talked to me on Twitter. We're, so I, uh, I feel like Emily and we were saying the same basic thing, but not in the same words at all. Yeah. Uh, you and I have talked about before on the show in prior episodes about how important it is to both of us to have representation of people from all across the spectrum of human experience. Uh, and we are resistant to labeling people with like a specific orientation when there are things that are unclear for a lot of different reasons. And one of them is that the language people have used to talk about their own identity has changed radically just in yours and my lifetime. Just in the last decade. Yeah. So, uh, like I know when I was 20, uh, the way people framed their own experience in the world, especially regarding gender and sexual orientation, was incredibly different from how people do now. And I really think this will continue to be the case, especially if the arc of society keeps bending toward more acceptance of people, like, uh, all across the spectrum. So it's really important to both of us to talk about and acknowledge um the nuances of people's lives. And also important not to, like, give someone a specific label when we don't know how they would have described themselves, which was the case with Edmonia Lewis. Um, I do like the fact that <laughs> uh, Emily wrote to us herself to talk about um, queer art theory, because when I was uh, in college, queer theory was really in its infancy, total infancy. Um, and I think has become a much broader... Uh, set of ideas and a more widely accepted term, but it's not a term we have used on the podcast a lot because it is brand new to a lot of people who are not like within that community. Yes. And I will admit there is also a certain degree to which when we're talking about people that perhaps would fit into different categories now that didn't even exist then. I also wonder if in five years, Whatever we were to say on the podcast now would also seem completely, like, incorrect and out of step. Oh, yeah. As we continue to rapidly evolve. Mm -hmm. And so I, that's part of my reluctance is that I don't, yeah. we are in a shifting linguistic landscape at the moment. Yeah. It, when I think about the first episodes of trans history that we did, 
Yeah. Uh, which like I did talk to trans people in my life about while trying to figure out how to best make decisions uh, about how to discuss people's lives. I, there are things I absolutely would never have said or gotten into if we were redoing those episodes now. And that was only three years ago. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I know those are discussions that having nothing to do with anything made for public consumption, like a podcast that happen among my friends just casually where it's like, man, we never would have talked about this this way. Yeah. If, if we were having this conversation now that we had like at that party or in that class or in. So, I mean, it's, it's, we're all evolving our yeah. understandings. The world is changing very rapidly in terms of all of our understandings of, uh, Gender and sexual orientation. I say all of our in a very welcoming way. I know there yeah. are folks who, who resist the idea that, that there is fluidity in gender and sexual orientation. But like from our point of view as a podcast, there is a whole huge spectrum, uh, to talk about that does not, a lot of times not easily pigeonholed into a particular, um, label. Yeah. And when I talk about like, you know, within my friend group having those discussions, I'm talking about a, pretty diverse friend group in terms of gender and sexuality. Like there are people that identify in ways that they acknowledge didn't exist several years ago, even, Mm -hmm. or they identified in a way several years ago that they now feel is not a smart way to identify or that it's, you know, not an accurate representation of them. So, I mean, I think we are all having this conversation and it it moves very quickly. And so I'm always part of it, too, is that I'm always keenly aware of my ability to put my foot in my mouth in a (laughs) well-meaning way. Me too. Uh, you know, I certainly don't want to ever, you know, make anyone feel like their situation is degraded or looked down upon or not respected even on a most basic level. So yeah. that's, that's part of why we don't tend to start assigning things to right. deceased people who cannot be part of this conversation. Yeah. And in my Twitter conversation with Margaret, one of the things I talked about was how I, I, I like words like, like queer that are more broadly inclusive of more different types of orientations and genders and all of that. But I also feel like the world, the word queer as a word is still like very early in its life of being reclaimed from being an active slur to a word that is okay for people to use in a non slur context, um, which is one of the reasons that I've been reluctant to, just put that out there on the podcast. So anyway, thank you so, so, so much, uh, Emily. Thank you so, so much, Margaret, for talking to me uh, on Twitter. Thank you to the folks who have written in with various thoughts about Edmonia Lewis. We definitely do know <laughs> that she was a Google doodle. <laughs> we know it a lot of times. Uh, I don't know about you, but my homepage is Google because I use it so much in my work. Uh, so I, I generally see Google Doodles right away. Anyway, if you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History and on Twitter at History. Our Tumblr, MissedInHistory.tumblr.com. We're also on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash History. Our Instagram is at History. I had to stop and think about it for a minute. <laughs> you can come to our parent company's website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. Uh, you will find all kinds of information about whatever your heart desires. And you can also come to our website, which is mistinhistory.com, and you will find show notes for all the episodes that Holly and I have ever worked on and 
an archive of every single episode ever. You will find episodes talking about that time that uh, American business interests overthrew the Hawaiian monarchy. <laughs> For example, you can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com or MythsInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 